I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey everybody, this is Richard Deitch and welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. My producer is Patrick Antonetti. Two guests this week. First up, Michelle Tafoya, the longtime sideline reporter for NBC Sports. She is leaving sports broadcasting for both a role in Minnesota politics as well as political commentating. Um, we have a 50-minute conversation or so on why she's making this change, what she hopes to do in her uh, post-sports broadcasting career. And we go into some of her uh, her most memorable moments as a sports broadcaster. Uh, she had interesting conversations over the years with Bill Belichick and Greg Popovich. And so uh, this is an interview. You know, some of you uh, some of you might not be surprised at where Michelle's heading. Some of you, I imagine, will be surprised. But tried to have a substantive and and, and fair conversation with her regarding her future. After that, Nancy Armour the excellent and longtime USA Today sports columnist. She joins us from Beijing, where she talks about the challenges of covering these games, what she had to do to get to Beijing, uh, what her accommodations are like, how she chooses her stories daily, what kind of access she has. So if you're into these Olympics, and by the looks of the sports viewership numbers, less of you are than ever before, you'll be interested in Nancy's story, even if uh, even if you're down on the Olympics, and I can certainly understand why, she has a very, very interesting assignment right now, and it was very cool of her to join us uh, from China. So Michelle Tafoy to start, Nancy Armour to finish, coming up on the Sports Media Podcast. All right, as I said at the top, uh, which was a bit of a shorter intro, I'm going to give a longer-ish uh, intro now for Michelle Tafoya. Uh, this year's Super Bowl... She will conclude her NFL sideline reporting career, having worked 327 NFL games on the sideline. That's 301 regular season games, including five Super Bowls. She's had one of the most illustrious careers in the position of sideline reporter. As I mentioned, this year's Super Bowl between the Rams and Bengals, that was her fifth Super Bowl between her work in NBC and ABC. She's on the sidelines during NBC's broadcast of the Patriots-Seahawks couple of years ago. That's the most watched television show in U.S. history. She's covered a wide range of sports beyond the NFL, including multiple Olympics since she joined NBC. Prior to joining the NBC Sports Group, she spent a, more than a decade at ABC ESPN, which included work on Monday Night Football, NFL studio programs, and the NBA. Before she was at ESPN, probably, many of you probably don't even remember this, Michelle worked for CBS Sports for six years as a game reporter, studio host for the NFL, college football, college basketball. She also hosted CBS's late night winter Olympics uh, from 1998. She also did the Goodwill games. In addition to that, she was a WNBA commentator on Lifetime from 1997 to 1999. If you go back even further, Michelle Tafoya was a host and a sideline reporter for the Minnesota Vikings, working for KFAN AM in Minneapolis in the 90s. Michelle, I'm exhausted at this point with your resume, 
But uh, I'm very pleased to be joined by Michelle Tafoya. I think this is her first extended interview regarding um, what she wants to do next. And I just want to let the audience know as you're listening, we are taping this before the Super Bowl. So a lot of my questions for Michelle are certainly going to be based on um, her NBC Sports career has concluded. But you should know out of respect for the guest that she's answering questions about stuff a couple of days still before the Rams and Bengals. And with that, Michelle Tafoya, welcome to the Sports Media Podcast. It is great to be with you. I have a lot of respect for your work, so I'm happy to be here. Thank you, Michelle. All right, let's um, let's start here. Big question. Why was this the right time for you to step away from sports? Well, I actually think the right time was earlier than this. Uh, I had given my, my notice to Fred Gadelli, the producer of Sunday Night Football, uh, that 2019 was probably going to be my last season. And at that time, he said, oh, would you just stay through the Super Bowl of 2020? You could work half the season in 2020 and we'll get another reporter for the other half of the games if it helps you. I've got two kids at home. And um, and I said, OK. And then somewhere along the line, the Super Bowl got moved a year out to this year, 2021 season. And so long story short, um, this has been in the works for a while. You, you get to a point in your life where you want to, I got to a point in my life where I wanted to try other things. And there are some things that are really important to me. And this is not to say that sports isn't an important field, that my job isn't an important job. But in my position, I was not as free to be as vocal about world events that I'm concerned about. Um, and it's not because I was you know, told to shut up. I want to be very clear about that. But look, if you're on a show like Sunday Night Football, which is the number one show in primetime for 11 straight years, unprecedented, the last thing they want to do is invite controversy. And, you know, when they allowed me to go on The View earlier this season, it invited a little controversy. And, you know, the, 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 the years we're living in, the time we're living in, People will take things and they'll jump on and pounce on anything they possibly can, uh, what somebody says. So given all of that, they asked that I just, you know, kind of keep it in check until I was done. And I agreed to that. And um, but I, I can't anymore. I just can't. I, I'm too passionate about things going on into the world that I want to be able to be a voice in. All right, Michelle, that's a good intro for a couple of things just to get some clarification on before we obviously move to many other topics. I want to ask you directly, was this your decision or did NBC Sports want to move away from you? No, this was absolutely my decision. As I said, I gave them my notice three years ago, hoping to be done earlier. Um, Fred Gadelli, who's a great friend and really wanted me to stay through this Super Bowl made it happen so that I could stay through this Super Bowl. And we worked together on that. Um, in fact, in the COVID year, 2020, I was only supposed to work half those games. Then COVID started and, and I, I looked at the scheduling and the potential for all the reschedules and you know stuff that could go wrong. And I said, look, Fred, just count me in for the whole season. I don't want to make your life any more complicated than it is. I'll work and we'll, you know, cause we don't even know if we're going to get a whole season. That's going into that, you know what we were getting. So no, this is all my decision. Everyone at NBC will back me up on that. Um, they have always told me I can stay as long as I want. And uh, for me, it was, 
I got I got to make my move while I'm still I've still got the energy to do other things, you know, and and have an impact. And I don't want to wait. This is this is my decision. All right, let's put to bed something else that got a lot of uh, uh, a lot of uh, pros and and press and notice. Um, after your view appearance, did NBC Sports pull you from any games because of that? Or was it your decision to miss the games that you ultimately missed? Totally my decision. Bef- again, going into the season, uh, Al and I were given games off. We knew, and, and I told Fred, our producer, everyone should know, whenever I say Fred, he's the producer of Sunday Night Football, who's the guy that makes the decisions about everything. He said to me, you know what? It's great that you're going to do the whole season for us. If you want, you can have four games off. What do you want to do? Do you want a Christmas weekend off? Do you want Thanksgiving off? And I said, I'll tell you when the schedule comes out. Okay, the schedule comes out. That's always like Christmas morning at my house. Yeah, the schedule's out. Let's see what we're going to do. And I looked for cold weather games. And I said, hey, Thanksgiving's in a dome. I'm going to work Thanksgiving. And I'll take the next week off because that's in Baltimore on Sunday. And then there were two Green Bay games in December. And I said, eh, I'm out for those. I'm not going to Green Bay in December. I'm so sick of being out in the cold. It is hard work. It is uncomfortable. And if I'm going to be given a choice, I'd rather work inside in Dallas on Christmas weekend than outside in Green Bay in late December. So all my decisions were dictated by weather. That is the truth. That decision was made like I said, just like almost the, the moment the schedule came out, it was very easy for me to make those decisions. I, again, I appreciate you providing clarity on that. I, I would have thought that if people saw you were assigned to the postseason and the Super Bowl, one would think if NBC Sports was truly mad at you, they would not assign you to a game being watched by 100 million people, their most important property exponentially. So I, I do appreciate hearing from you, although... That was one always that, um, and maybe I'm just too deep in the weeds covering this, that just struck me as odd because, like, again, these networks very easily can buy people out. They have oodles of money. If they didn't want you to work their most important property, they would say, Michelle, thank you very much. Take care. But clearly, you're working the Super Bowl. So um, so I think, you know, we, we put that to bed, which is, uh, which is nice. Yeah. One more quick tale on that, Richard, is that if people recall – I worked for three straight weeks, I think, after the view appearance. So if they were really angry, they would have yanked me right away. They, they weren't. Uh, okay. So that's sort of um, so asked and answered, as they say, and appreciate it. Um, okay. One more thing I want to ask before um, we get into what, um, what you're thinking about uh, doing next. You, you have been sort of sports famous, if that's the right word, or sports television famous, maybe is the better way to say it, for a long time. Um, I mentioned earlier, you know, you've been on broadcasts that uh, essentially, you know, uh, uh, among the most watched broadcasts in in the history of United States uh, television history. And so how, Michelle, how did being on television as long as you have with as many eyeballs uh, as has been on you, how do do you think that's impacted you on a day to day basis? You you did live it. You do live in Minnesota. So in in many ways, you are away from like L.A. and New York. You're sort of not part of the. What you know the the conventional places where we see very well known people, and I imagine that must have helped. But um, how did you process just being very very well known in in this area? It's funny. I don't feel quote unquote famous. I don't feel well known. I'm always shocked. I'm I'm not kidding. 
I'm always stunned when someone says they know who I am. And I, I'm ultra stunned. Like I met Snoop Dogg at a game recently and I went up to him. my son really wanted me to take a selfie with Snoop. Right. So I go up to him and I, um, hi, I'm Michelle Tafoy on the side. He goes, I know who you are. And I'm like, I, <laughs> that's weird. Snoop knows who I am, you know? So we took all these pictures and it was great. And he was super nice. So that's just a recent example. When stuff like that happens, I'm blown away. I, I don't think of myself in that way. I really, really don't. And I think part of it is you're right. I go home to Minnesota every week and I hunker down with my husband and two kids and, and we don't talk about it. We just don't. And that's important to me because I want my kids to just think of me as their mom um, you know, they hear things now and then, or, or they, you know, I remember picking up my son from carpool one day and we were bringing a friend home with him and his friend got in the car. And even though I was no longer working for ESPN, he said, Hey, it's ESPN's Michelle Tapoy. You know, he was like a fourth grader. So he thought he was being really funny. And my son was just like, whatever, dude, you know, it's, 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 I, I've never really thought about it as my, as part of who I am. It's what I do. Um, Certainly. I mean, you know, there are moments where I was on 4th of July with my brother and his wife and some friends and these people came up and they were just gushing and, oh my God, Matt, we love your sister. And you know, all this, I, it was, it's weird for me. Um, I I've learned to just kind of smile and thank people. And um, you know, I will say there are some pros and cons certainly and my husband is always quick to remind me that whenever something good happens because of my being well-known, uh, there's a little perk in life or, you know, someone gives you a nice table at a restaurant. He looks at me and he goes, so remember that this is the counter to all the crappy stuff you have to go through so that it kind of balances out. So try to accept it because I don't feel good about jumping the line. I don't feel good about being treated differently. I don't. That's not who I am. That's not what I'm about. And but he always tries to settle me down about it by saying, remember all the crappy stuff? This is sort of to make up for that. Um, so that's really it, Richard. Let's head to what's next. So in terms of the short term, Michelle, um, what's next for you? If, uh, if, if, I was, um, if, I want, if I was interested in what you're doing over the next six months, what are you doing? Well, uh, I'm going on a lot of shows I never would have been allowed to go on before or you know, would have been discouraged, I should say. I don't want to make it sound like NBC was tying my hands or giving me a gag order, but they asked politely that I don't. So I've done a lot of appearances in, in arenas that I would not have done them. Um, and that includes going down to CPAC in Orlando. And that's not because I'm a raging conservative. It's because I have a voice that I want to express to, uh, to others in, in areas that I'm invited and I would probably go anywhere that I was invited and try to have civil discourse with people. Um, I am announcing, in fact, uh, the day after the Super Bowl, however you want to frame it here, uh, that I am the co-chairman of a gubernatorial campaign in Minnesota. A gentleman named Kendall Qualls is running for governor of Minnesota, and I will be uh, working on his campaign with him. Um, and uh, so that's kind of the first, you know, the first six months, if you will. And I'm also getting a dog, which is going to take a lot of uh, attention. At CPAC, uh, will you be, will your role be interviewing someone at CPAC or something else? Well, 
you know, at this moment, I would have told you 24 hours ago that I'm interviewing Annis Cantor Freedom, the Boston Celtics player who's very passionate about what's going on in China and the, the, the slavery over there and the genocide. And Annis and I are trying to work that through. Uh, but if that does not come to pass because he's got games and so forth, uh, then I will go down there and probably be part of a panel um, talking about whatever subjects. I'm, I'm just not afraid of any topic. I just want to make sure I talk about stuff I know about. I'm not going to sit here and pretend that I know everything and try to talk about stuff I'm not informed about, but I do have really strong opinions about the world. And, um, and I just want to use my voice. When I spoke to you, I uh, believe uh, it was 2015 or so, we had, a, so we, had, we had an interview that went into um, politics and sort of your interest in this and how, and how you navigated it with NBC. And I remember you told me that you classified yourself as a pro-choice conservative. Is that classification still accurate or would you classify yourself as something different in 2022? I would say I'm a libertarian. Um, okay. Yeah, I would, I would go a little more in that direction. I mean, my, I think I'm most conservative when it comes to, uh, I, I prefer a smaller government and I prefer a lot less of our tax dollars being spent the way that they are. Um, but I, you know, I remain pro-choice. Uh, I think that is just in a lot of ways, by the way, um, I think there are a lot of choices that should be left up to individuals and not instituted or not forced upon us by a government that we elect unless, you know, we, we elect them because we want them to make that choice for us. And I, I just don't think government's about making choices for us in our personal lives. I really don't. So if that clears it up, I, then I think probably libertarian is your, uh, cause I'm not familiar with, uh, your candidate is your candidate a Republican candidate, a Libertarian candidate, or another party? He's running as a Republican. Um, again, his name is Kendall Qualls. Uh, I, I I hate that I even have to mention this, but because you don't have a photo of him there, he's African American, and he is really disheartened by the way that he believes um, his race is being used to make arguments about things and he's a he's got a military background he's got a big business background he's worked in fortune 500 companies as a marketer um, but again military background and it is a living example of the american dream i mean lived in a grew up in a trailer park and made he made a life for himself and he and i share something in common our one of my favorite books and one of his favorite books is booker t washington up from slavery and um, so we connect on the power of the individual to dictate his or her own life and uh, circumstances um, be able to to work their way into and out of circumstances. And uh, so that's who he is that in a nutshell. And um, I'm going to fight really hard for him. And we don't agree on everything. He is pro-life. I want to make that clear. He's pro-life. And I don't take that stand. Um, look, I don't I'm not. There's a difference here, right? I'm not pro-abortion like, yay, go get an abortion. That's not what I'm about. But I, I don't think it's anyone's right to tell a woman she has to stay pregnant. Um, and I'm not about late-term abortions. I think those are hideous. Uh, and, you know, so, so he and I are not, I don't think there's a candidate in the world 
that I would agree with 100%, except if the candidate were me. And, um, and even then, I'm not sure I would agree with her 100% of the time. But um, that, that's, that's kind of who he is and what he's about. And, and, and that's why I'm supporting him. I want to read you um, something about because this sort of gets into it's clearly clearly this is these are issues and certainly being part of uh, the broader capital P politics is something you've obviously wanted to do for a while now. You mentioned early in this interview that you would have left a couple of years ago from NBC Sports, but you sort of stuck around. So I want to again go back to this interview that we had. I, I know you remember this. We had a long interview in 2015 about many of these things. And I wrote that you were an anomaly at that point among high-profile sports TV people. Your social media feed was very politically oriented. Keep in mind, by the way, Twitter was very different in 2015 than it is in 2022. So you were openly critical of candidates. You would you would mention like your opinion on debate moderators, I remember. And then I remember asking you about, well, sort of how do you navigate this within NBC? And you told me that NBC – this is really interesting to look back on, Michelle, at this now. NBC was fine with her political – I'm reading direct – political advocacy, but they did not – but they did ask her to remove the NBC Sports part from her handle. Uh, Tafoya asked her NBC Sports bosses for permission to speak publicly on behalf of certain candidates she favors as well as to serve on committees promoting certain candidates – this is my editorializing. It's a professional back and forth that seems to be example for others in the media. Well, that's sort of changed in many ways. Um, and this is you saying, I understand the ramifications. They will ask what I am doing and what I'm going to say. It's not that they are censoring me, but they just want to prevent me from going off the deep end, which I am not because I am a fairly moderate person. They've been extremely respectful about it. And I just want to ask, since we had that interview, was your experience similar than over the next seven years or do you feel maybe because the climate got much more politicized that NBC was more wary of you doing and being as active as you were when we talked in 2015 about things? First of all, I can't believe it was that long ago because I do remember that interview, Richard. I remember it very well. Um, it, I, I don't think anything at NBC changed. I think I certainly have evolved. And I think that, I mean, at some point, and it, probably two years ago, maybe I just went off social media. Um, I, I know, you know, my, my Twitter account is, is, is off my face. I went off Facebook, Instagram, all of it. The only thing I communicate now on is LinkedIn. <laughs> and that's because it's just a little bit more of a professional civil dialogue. And so I don't feel compelled. And there are people who are telling me, Hey, look, now you're back in business. You've got to get on these sites, but uh, it's, I, Maybe I'm too, maybe I'm going to sabotage myself and I'll find out, I guess, but it's hard for me to participate on platforms that have taken down other people that have blocked articles from being viewed, um, that have made it their right to, and, and they make some very interesting choices about that. And so, uh, you know, who they leave up and who they take down. And um, I just couldn't, I just, I've got values and I've got, um, I, I'm very convicted. And so when I see that, I can't, I can't participate. And so we're trying to work with that now as I enter this new part of my life and I want to have this presence, 
Where do I find it? Where do I find a place that has the breadth or the reach that we want, but that I agree with? I, I just, I'm, I'm stubborn in that way. Um, <laughs> I, I just, I'm laughing because some of the decisions that I make, like I won't buy anything made in China. I will not. I don't care if they tell me, oh, but we've scoped this manufacturing plant out. No, enough. We know what's going on in China. There's genocide. There's slavery. It's people can't, they they aren't treated like people there. I cannot support any company that decides that manufacturing there is a good idea. So every little thing, I flip it over. I'm in the store. I flip it over. Oh. And sometimes I take pictures of made in China and I'll post it on LinkedIn. Please avoid this brand. It's made in China. I don't tell people to avoid it. I just say, please, because I just feel that strongly. So um, this is kind of, it's a, it's a constant battle for me. Michelle, when you mentioned that, um, you know, obviously you're working for, you're going to be working for this gubernatorial candidate. You're going to be making yourself available to be on the air. Um, you know, obviously, whatever whatever medium that is, television, podcasting, I, I'm sure um, you'll make it known to, to politically oriented shows that you're available. Is this ultimately um, at least your hope that it leads to you having some kind of daily or weekly uh, presence where you are the host and you can dictate the conversations that you ultimately want to dictate in the political uh, cultural sphere? The short answer to that is absolutely yes. Um, that's what I'd like to do. I think I've talked to so many people who feel that the voices that they are that they have access to are either way over on one end of the political spectrum or way over on the other. And I just think there is a massive in-between audience that's being left out of the conversation, or they feel like they can't talk. I mean, I have friends that are afraid to say certain things on Facebook, in parents' meetings. And my God, that is scary to me, that people are actually afraid to say things because of the ramifications, because of the names they might get called, because of what it might mean for their kids at school or their business. That is a terrifying place to be. And that's not the essence of what this country was about. I don't care what your opinion is or what your stance and so when people say things to me like, uh, oh, you know, th this, this network or that network, I say, let them all talk. More voices, not fewer. Now, there's that old, you know, saying you can't yell fire in a crowded theater and you can't. Um, I think we're all smart enough to make our own decisions when we listen to people, though. And to just decide that someone should be taken off Spotify, for example, um, because they think... Uh, misinformation or you know they start to call people names in order to manipulate their future career uh that's freaking terrifying to me and that should not be going on in the united states of america all we have to do is look at other places where that happens when has that been a good idea when never so i that's that's a lot of what i want to express and talk about and i'm willing to take the risk have you um been invited back on the view or is that of interest to you I've been invited back. I don't know. I don't know. Um, you know, I've been invited back. I'm actually scheduled to go back. Uh, some recent 
events at the view are, are just kind of making me think a little harder about whether or not I want to do that. Okay. I appreciate uh, you answering that. I remember, uh, again, going back to our interview in 2015, that Sunday Night Football Group talked a lot about politics, you said, um, on the way uh, to dinner. Probably haven't didn't have as much of that during COVID, obviously. Um, on the rides to the airport, um, I mean, I, this should not be breaking news to people who sort of part of the business. I, Al Michaels is a GOP supporter. I don't know his politics um, sort of more specific than that, but I, I'm I'm correct on that, Michelle. Correct? He's, yeah. He, okay, so that's 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 not incorrect. And and interested very much in politics, by the way. I've talked to Al enough to know that that's the case. One of the things, and the reason here's why I'm sort of bringing this part up, and I I would love to. <laughs> just to even get broad strokes, like how often you guys talked about politics, because that's just kind of interesting that you had this whole other life, uh, you know, in addition to talking football, obviously, for the week. But in that piece, Michelle, I have a sentence in here that says you're sort of talking about you guys having conversations about this. And then it's said to FOIA, whose sister, in an interesting twist, works for the Obama administration. Um, so your sister uh, has po- is, is politically aligned differently than you is that is that a fair assessment yes okay four kids and two are on one side of the aisle and two are on the other (laughs) (laughs) okay all right so you have an interesting family like many americans do so how much uh so how do i ask this so like again like was this the hobby for some of the sunday night football people like on air talents that like maybe just to get away from the sports you guys would discuss all right, here's what's going on with the Trump administration. Here's what's going on with the Biden administration. My my sense is that, um, my again, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but my sense is this was a little bit of a hobby for you guys to maybe break away from sports a little bit. Yeah, we talk about everything. I, I mean, we, uh, we had a little dinner last night. Um, this is the week of the Super Bowl that we're taping this, and we had a little intimate dinner just to kind of acknowledge that this is it for this group and we talk about everything under the sun i mean some of it is not suitable for air so i wouldn't say it but right. <laughs> the political dialogue has is really cut back a lot and part of that makes me sad and i know why it is it's the fear it's the fear of well who's who's here in the van with us what if they disagree? How much of an argument are we ready to get into right now? Um, so it just, it really, it depends on the group dynamic that's around in that moment. You know, how are we going to, what are we going to discuss? Al and I have a lot of fun. And Al insists that I'm going to run for Senate someday and he's going to run my campaign for me. Uh, so, <laughs> he, um, you know, th- we, we have a lot of fun. Uh, but it's not for everyone in the group. And so we want to be respectful of that. Um, things have changed a lot in seven years. And, um, and Agreed. you know, some of it makes me sad, really. Like, we can't just talk, but it just really depends on the group dynamic. Who's in there? Um, h- how ugly can the conversation get? And do we want to have that ugly conversation? I don't. Um, so I'm content believing what I believe, thinking what I think, and not trying to argue with someone whose opinion I have absolutely no chance of changing. Yeah, no, and I, I, I appreciate that answer. And again, like there are, I can guarantee there are things that you think that I disagree with and probably vice versa, but I also don't want to use this, uh, this time that we have right now to sort of, to, to, you know, to get into a larger debate, because I think your story is interesting in terms of where, um, 
where you're heading. Uh, but maybe you know, maybe one day we'll we'll do this. We'll do it offline. There we go. Uh, we probably have we have probably have more similarities than maybe both of us uh, think, and then we definitely will disagree on many things but it, too. But you're a Minnesotan, and I'm a I'm a I grew up as a New Yorker. I mean, I think that's bound to be uh, bound to be the well. World you know what? I'll tell you this too. What you just said is so important that we probably have way more in common than we know. And I think that's true all over the country and that's, what's getting ignored. And that pisses me off. I understand that. Um, and I, and I, 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 I do understand that. All right. You mentioned this and I should, I should have probably asked this earlier. Uh, do you yourself, you obviously are interested in politics. You're clearly interested in Minnesota politics, given what you're about to do. Do you yourself have any um, inclination to run for any kind of public office? Is that of interest to you as you head forward? I'll say this. Um, I've been asked multiple times to run for office in Minnesota. Um, I know there's a, a there are people who really want me to do that. Um, my husband is not one of those people. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> right. you know, I have to respect that too because i love and respect my husband and i want our marriage to be happy a happy place for both of us he has no problem with me getting on a podcast and saying whatever the heck i want to say he doesn't have a problem with that at all i think it's it's the commitment it's the time commitment it's what it could put our family through all of those things and that again i get pissed off and i say that shouldn't be so why should i run from that because that's i you know i want to run i want to run into that and, um, but I just don't know yet. Um, not at the moment, I will say not at the moment. And it, it a lot will depend on what, you know, what transpires here over the next year. Would you, wh where does your interest lie in if someone, um, invited you onto a program really ideologically different than you, uh, you know, what I, I don't even want to use an example, but like if someone really ideologically, um, had viewpoints very, very different from you, would that be of interest to you to go on that forum? Or would you be, would you want, are you interested in doing more things? Not necessarily that you're perfectly aligned with, but that maybe it's closer to your alignment. I went on the view, didn't I? <laughs> that was, that that's, yeah. Okay. That's fair. You know what? Great answer. Yeah, that's true. Include the audience. It was five against one. Um, Right, right. You you did go on the view. That's right. right would, fair enough. You asked. I would an never run away from that. I I I want to engage with people, all people. You know, it's it's easy and comfortable to go somewhere where you align, and it's fun because you can all just, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. But I I also I want to engage with anybody, everybody. I I've never understood why some politicians don't jump feet first into crowds that disagree with them. And and see what they can see what they can accomplish. It is an interesting strategy when you see um, when you see members of uh, the Democratic Party on Fox and vice versa. When you see a GOP candidate on uh, MSNBC, because honestly, very many times something interesting yeah. comes of that for yeah. the audience. Um, so I, I I agree with that. All right, I want to move off uh, politics and culture for a little bit and get to your sports career. It was sort of this is how we'll sort of. Uh, uh, wrap up our segment here. Um, you really, Michelle, again, it, it, you have had a lottery ticket career, just to be blunt. You've, you have covered and, and been part of like some of the biggest events, sporting events in the history of the country. Um, so let me just sort of off the top of your head a little bit. Uh, what's the best game or event you ever covered? Whoa. I mean, we just had a game here, uh, at the end of the season, 
with um, the Chargers and right that went back and forth and back and forth and back and forth and Vegas finally won, and it was insanely great. Those are the <laughs> games great. that get forgotten kind of the next week because neither of those teams. Else. Right. I'll never forget being on the sidelines for that Seattle New England game when everyone thought Marshawn Lynch was going to run it in and they decided to throw and Malcolm yeah. Butler made that interception. And, uh, you know, my goal in that moment in life was to chase him down and get that interview. And by the time Al threw it to me, Malcolm had waited long enough and he ran away and I had to chase him down to get the interview all on live television. Um, that was amazing. Um, you know, some of the Olympic games covering Michael Phelps final games in Rio. Tops, amazing. Yeah. And, and it, and it was largely because of Phelps, but it was also because of Katie Ledecky and every other Amer America kept winning. And when you work um, as the American poolside reporter for an Olympic games, you almost get to be a cheerleader. You know, you, you don't have to shy away from that, that congratulatory feel of the gold medal interview. It's, it's remarkable and it's exhilarating. And, and to, to witness these athletes uh, come out of the pool and do something that nobody else on the planet can do, and they've just done it and, uh, and achieved their dream, is witnessing something quite remarkable. And it's, I don't know how you replace that. Uh, Brett Favre in a Vikings uniform beating the Packers for the first time in that season in Minneapolis. Yeah, that I remember that game. Crazy, yep, yep, amazing, yeah. fun, and the post game. Brett and I just texted about it recently, how, how, how memorable that was for both of us. And uh, so, you know, there have been some great Peyton Manning moments. There, Tom Brady moments. There have been so many. Um, but those few that, I, that came right off the top of my head are there for a reason. Yeah, the uh, people should like sort of understand that like no poolside reporter will ever have it better than Michelle Tafoya. She covered the intersection of Phelps and Ledecky. It essentially will almost be impossible for someone else in the next 50 to 60 years to cover the two greatest swimmers, male, female in their sports. It's just not going to logic says that that can't happen. And so you're right. Like uh, that would have been. I mean, I love track and field, but that would have been the place to be in your position for your assignment. It was the place to be. And I remember walking out of the aquatic center one night and saying, I cannot believe I'm getting paid to do this. Yeah, I, I, I like, this is too much fun. The, the mo I, I want to ask you the moment you're most proud of, but let me see if it's this one, because I remember writing about this, that, um, in November, 2013, um, during the Texans Colts game, um, Gary Kubiak collapsed on the field, was transported to a local hospital. And I remember, Michelle, uh, watching that. And for whatever reason, I always wanted that. Maybe I didn't ask you about this, but I probably should have at one point. There was like a calmness to your reporting. All this sort of thing, all like this horrible thing was happening in front of you. But you really did, I thought, a pretty phenomenal job of letting the audience know what was happening in sort of sparse, I don't want to say unemotional, but sort of like – very sort of um, sobering tones that people understood the severity of what was going on in the field. And this, obviously, you had no idea what was going to happen with Gary Kubiak at that moment. So I wonder for you, I think you won an Emmy on that, but it feels like everybody wins a sports Emmy at one point. Um, so, but, uh, but, but that, that had to be up there, right? For that had to be up there for one of your yeah. moments. Cause that to me was that sideline reporting 
at its at its sort of highest or hardest in that you have this real life thing in front of you that you're reporting to millions of people, not just millions of people, to people who really love and care about Gary Kubiak too. Yeah, and the uh, the not knowing, especially when it first happened, and when it first happened, I was in a the opposite tunnel, and uh, my sideline producer Michelle Froman, I could hear her calling to me. I didn't have my earpiece in, but it was sitting right on my shoulder, and I could hear this frantic voice coming out of this little earpiece sitting on my shoulder, and uh, I ran as fast as I could to the field, and I looked at this, and I thought okay, we don't know what's happening here. But you, there was this immediate switch that flipped into, we have to be respectful. We have to be calm. We've got to gather our information extremely carefully. We can't jump to conclusions. We've, we have got to take this moment by moment. And there was a clarity that came in it all. And I was able to do that somehow. And, um, I, yeah, I don't know. It's the one thing I really remember about it visually was when Kubiak was lying on the field, he, he at one point tried to sit up and he squeezed his eyes really tight and laid back down. And it reminded me of after my dad had had his stroke and, you know, after my dad had his stroke, his life completely changed. And a lot of the time he would squeeze his eyes like that. And I remember thinking, thinking of my dad just in that moment. But then I kind of went back to calm down. We don't know what's happening here. My inside, I'm going, you know, this, this, we honestly don't know how this could have ended. And it could have ended right there on the field on live television. He could have taken his last breath because, and I'm not trying to be dramatic. It's just, we didn't have a clue. We didn't know what he was going through. And so it, it was, extreme caution and extreme just really staying in your with your feet on the ground and uh so yeah i am proud of that because that wasn't about sports in that moment and it, i i guess i i i was happy that i could handle it i want to ask you about two very prominent coaches that you dealt with uh in two different sports um i have asked you about dealing with belichick before and you bill belichick and you had said you know, you've known him for a long time, worked with him for a long time, but he does not want to be there at halftime. He does he does not want to do these interviews. And so and he doesn't reveal much regardless. Right. So the process is always there are certain coaches where the process is probably like it's really a back and forth and you can you feel like you could probably go for an hour. Yeah. That's not Belichick. How did you navigate uh, Belichick, because I, I would think at a certain point, given that you you were on this program for such a long time, there had to be some kind of mutual respect. Like he knew you were going to be the one interviewing him. At the same time, he really does not, he doesn't give you much in these situations. So how do you, nav- how'd you navigate that world? That was, it is honestly, it was extremely challenging and extremely challenging because no, you, you're walking into it knowing how it's going to be, right? And you're walking in right. knowing that it's not going to be necessarily fun. And, um, and some of that is on me. If I asked a question that was not a good question, he would let me know. And so, you know, over the course of time, I tried to learn how to present questions to him in a way that um, – was more intelligent, maybe. I mean, look, I, I've been at this for a long time, so there was always room for growth and improvement with me. Always, still is. Um, 
And so, you know, it was, it was always a little bit of a pit in the stomach. I want to make sure I'm smart and I'm asked a smart enough question that Bill will respect. Um, you know, I got a Christmas card from him this year again. I have every year. Wow. And Interesting. It, it's so I do feel like there's a, there's a relationship there. It's just, it's just, um, you know, there have been really fun, great moments. And then there have just been some that were more challenging. And I'm going to take responsibility for some of that for maybe not, not asking the best question. And, uh, you know, because he's, he, he, I think the whole world sees how he treats with the me- treats the media in general. So this, our little interviews were just a microcosm of that. Greg Popovich, when you did the NBA, though, you well, loved you, 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 I, you told me this. I remember like sort of double taking like, wow, that's kind of interesting. Now, you know, Popovich does some of this curmudgeonly stuff with it's a little yeah, bit performative, yeah. but. There have been times, but the reality is, and this is why your answer was always interesting to me. The reality is, even if it's performative, it, it can suck for the reporter who's asking the questions. But for whatever reason, you said he was your favorite coach to deal with in the NBA, and you guys had a rapport. I wonder if you could just sort of reflect on interviewing Popovich during um, the whatever the quarter segment was, or post game, or pre game. I think, especially at halftime. Um, that's when you're really trying to get something out of a coach uh, to, to talk about what they're going to do. And if, you know, especially if it's not going well, um, I think just having so many meetings with Greg and, you know, these meetings that the announcers have with the head coach and, and they were in the playoffs every freaking year that I was covering the NBA. So there were a lot of meetings. Uh, there was a lot of getting to know each other time. And, um, you know, I just chose my spots and, and, there was one game, and I'm not like if if Al Michaels, I'd be able to tell you the date, the game, the circumstances, but I'm not Al Michaels, so I can't do that. I'm amazed at him. I just remember a halftime. I believe it was on ABC. It could have been an ESPN telecast. They were, you know, the same entity. And at halftime, he gave me one of the best quotes I've ever been given in my life at a halftime. And I wrote it down verbatim. I just I remembered it. I wrote it down and got back on the air and I delivered it. After the game, he was asked about it in a way that made it sound different from what I had said. And someone approached me and said, what did you, what did you report? A bunch of us run back into the truck, transcribe the actual quote that I read and my whole report, present it back to the San Antonio Spurs. And they're like, oh yeah, that's what he said. Okay. But it was this, so I proved to him and to them that I'm not screwing around. I'm not going to I'm not going to get all breathless and report something that isn't accurate. Um, and I think that so there was some respect there, mutual respect. And I I just love dealing with him. I just we just kind of had fun. Final two, Michelle. Um, and I would be remiss to ask you this. Uh, if you had to guess, is Al Michaels the voice of Amazon next year or is he is he back with NBC in some form or fashion? Oh, I had to guess. I want to be really respectful of Al in answering this question. Um, I, you know, I guess if I had to guess, he'd be at the voice of Amazon. Because um, if he's not going to be on Sunday Night Football and the voice of Sunday Night Football, there's nothing else in my mind at NBC that would be attractive enough for him. 
I appreciate you answering that. I know you guys are longtime friends. All right, here's the last one, and this is you're an interesting person to ask this now because you you're really sort of going to morph into these two worlds. Um, talking about cultural issues, political issues, as you know, has become a big minefield in sports uh, media. I just use that sort of broadly, okay? okay? Uh, or people who are in sports. Maybe that's a better way to phrase it. If you were in charge of setting up a policy at a sports media organization, or let's say like at a place like NBC Sports, if you want to use your your current employer, um, what would you do with regard to staffers commenting on um, political or social issues? Because again, when I interviewed you way back when, what it, it was interesting, I don't even know if I agree or disagree with it, but what was interesting is one of the things that was very important to them was to remove the NBC handle from your Twitter feed. But I just tell you this, Michelle, just the reality of that is just kind of amusing to me because who on earth isn't going to know Michelle Tafoya works for NBC Sports, even if her dumb Twitter handle doesn't say it. Do you know <laughs> what I mean? So it was almost like a it was it was a distinction well, with no difference. Yeah. And so I wonder just again, I'm interested in your opinion on this because you were one of the people, by the way, long before a lot of people, including myself, could offer some cultural political opinions on Twitter. You were doing this in 2015, sort of before it really be, I don't want to say before it became a thing, but but you were doing it in a very high profile position because it was something obviously important for you to do. Well, I understand why they wanted the NBC or NBC Sports taken out of the handle. They did not want me to be representing any I, I get so it. Th- right. That that was fine with me. And in fact, one of the examples that they used for me when they told me was, look, we let Tony Dungy say anything he wants, but his Twitter handle says Tony Dungy. And that's it. But he's representing uh, okay. Tony Dungy. So yep. I think that's a wise and and you like that. All right. My my Twitter handle just never said the S- SI or right. the athletic. And I guess I'm gonna be honest, like there there is value in that because it's you know it's me, and it's not like, well, I don't speak for Sports Illustrated. Let's and, and then the Sports Illustrated isn't fielding calls saying, "All right, Richard." Right. Well, they might they they well they might be today, or the Athletic might be today. But I understand back then it felt a yeah. little bit different. You're um, right. Um, so my policy would be to let people say what they want to say, um, but at the same time, let's remember we have freedom of speech. Thank God. But there, there are businesses that need to be concerned about what their employees are doing and saying for the same reason that, you know, if someone got was charged with felony murder, you'd probably fire. Them, right now, speech is not felony murder. And that's where I really have the issue. Speech is free uh, right now. Anyway, knock on wood speech. Uh, I don't believe in regulating speech, but if someone says something that is so off the rails and antithetical to a company's uh, culture, right. they have every company has yeah, right I agree. to say, sorry, either you stop or you're gone. Um, that's a private business's right. And so I respect that. Will we, uh, do, you, do you think you'll have any interest in the next couple of years of doing one-offs in sports, not necessarily sideline reporter, but just popping on some sports show? just to offer your opinions on X, even if it was local sports radio yeah. in Minnesota. Yeah, I do. I do some one-offs. Absolutely. I love sports. I still do, you know? Um, so th- sure. Why not? The question, All right. The Michelle, question Richard is going to be, are they going to be one? They going to want you. Uh, I agree. The question it's all the, the interesting question will be how, how that world would react to you after 
you're offering opinions on things that they know um, can be tricky Correct. with their audience. I agree. That's the, that is the question, 100%. All right, Michelle Tafoya, again, as I mentioned at the top, she, she hasn't done this yet, but by the time you listen to this, um, she will have been on the sidelines for the Rams and Bengals. That's her fifth Super Bowl, um, and she will conclude her NBC Sports career. And again, this is one of the lottery ticket careers of people who have done what Michelle has done. I, you know, I listed her, her resume at the top. I didn't, I didn't, didn't even get to uh, all the poolside stuff that she did. But again, it's someone who, if you're a sports television watcher, she's really been part of your life for a long time. And now she's heading into the, um, the political and, uh, and, and cultural space. Um, <laughs> good luck on that, Michelle. It's, it will not be a, it will not be a quiet life for you. And again, I, I want to say this publicly. So people, before we sort of stop here, Michelle Tafoya could have done this interview with a lot of people. It's going to be newsworthy. Um, it's for, for certain. And certainly in my world. And I appreciate her, her coming on. I've always, at least I felt I've had a really great professional and respectful relationship with her. And, uh, and I will say, Michelle, I, I again, I, I truly appreciate you coming on. You, you could have picked a lot of places and, uh, and I'm glad that we sort of always respected each other professionally enough where you, you felt like you'd come on here. So I, thank you. And the thanks go right back to you for, for being the half of that relationship, that respectful relationship. So I appreciate you. You got it. All right, Michelle Tafoya, you'll be hearing from her in a different sphere. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you. All right, as I said at the top, I bring in Nancy Armour, live, at least live and taping this, from Beijing. Might be, Nancy, on the Sports Media Podcast. Uh, I believe you are, in terms of miles, uh, the, uh, the furthest guest that I've ever spoken with. Nancy Armour, of course, as I mentioned, is a sports columnist for USA Today, covering the Beijing Olympics, and I really wanted to get somebody, if I could, uh, who's covering these games in Beijing to talk about what the experience is like and to give listeners just a, just a sense of the challenge of covering these games. And really pleased to be joined by Nancy Armour in Beijing. Uh, it's morning for me, Nancy, and evening for you, so good evening. Uh, hello. Just don't ask me what day it is because I would not be able to tell you. <laughs> All right, so let's start here, sort of a big overview question. What's been the biggest challenges since you arrived in Beijing to cover this event? Since I arrived, probably the logistics aspect of it, um, which was really surprising to me. You know, when we were coming into to Beijing, we had all kinds of concerns about the COVID protocols and, and things like that. And the one thing that I was, I was absolutely certain of was no matter what else we had to deal with, that the, the Beijing organizers would have logistics locked down. And that has not been the case. Um, you know, the, the, we were told all kinds of things about high-speed trains and, and, you know, that you'd be able to move easily between the different clusters, and that has not been the case. They're several hours apart. Um, the high-speed train doesn't go from, what, you know, the cluster with alpine and bobsled to the cluster with, you know, snowboarding and, and cross-country skiing and aerials and all those types of things. So it's just, it's, you have to do a lot of thinking and a lot of planning about where you're going to go, how you're going to get there. Buses don't necessarily run on time. They don't run on a convenient schedule. So, you know, from that aspect, it's, it's really difficult. And you've been to Olympics before, you know how critical that is. Um, so to not have that is it, it adds another layer of challenges on top of everything else. 
That's interesting. Uh, we'll get to a little bit of that. And and then pr- prior to coming to the games, can you give people a sense of the kind of testing that you had to have? And I can only imagine that um, you really probably just had to time this where you are as, uh, you know, <laughs> as, as COVID-free in terms of the... Um, you know, the logistics and the identification and the passporting of being COVID free as possible. Yeah. Um, we had to do, uh, had to have two negative test results within 96 hours of leaving, one of which had to be within 72 hours of departure, which that was not different than Tokyo, the Tokyo games. It, that was actually the same thing. But the difference with, with Beijing was that we had to do the tests at a lab approved by the Chinese government. Um, and when we first got those instructions, there were maybe a dozen labs in the States that, that was on the list. So not only did you have to figure out, okay, you know, try and do the math of when you were leaving back up, you know, the 96 and 72 hours, um, you had to figure out what lab you were going to, or what, you know, what place you were going to take the tests at make sure that you could get the results back in time, then submit paperwork to the Chinese government to get the the lab that you wanted to get that approved and then have to wait. Um, So, (laughs) you know, that was very, very stressful because, you know, we had people who are in smaller cities that, you know, they didn't have anything. Uh, And if you couldn't find a lab, then, you know, one of our guys was thinking about driving to Chicago from Iowa. Uh, because he was so concerned that that his test results weren't going to be weren't going to be accepted, um, and then once you did your seventy two hour test and you got that result back, you had to apply for a certain code, and there was you know there were some stresses that if you hadn't filled out the paperwork correctly, that that was going to get rejected, and then what were you going to do because you couldn't board a plane without that? So there was just a it, and all of it ended up being fine. Um, you know, I think somebody looked at my QR code once. Um, they never did look at the ninety six hour test results, but it's just a level of stress because you don't know that. Um, so you have to prepare as if everything is going to be gone over with a fine tooth comb, and it's just you know you're trying to prepare for the Olympics as it is, pack for three weeks, and then you have all you know have to deal with all this stuff. So we all kind of were thinking, you know, just get there. Just get there, get through, don't test positive before you go, um, and and hope that everything would be okay. How how is your accommodations? Well, um, I am this like I've hit the lottery for Olympic accommodations. I'm in Yanchang, which is the middle cluster, it's where Alpine and Bobsled are. Um, I'm in a double tree. It is the nicest double tree nice. I have ever seen in my entire life. Uh, my room is huge, the bathroom is phenomenal, the food is actually really good. Um, so I have no complaints. <laughs> I know that there's some issues with other people, you know, their, their Wi-Fi doesn't work in their rooms. Food's not great. Rooms are small. Beds are uncomfortable. Um, I have no complaints. Uh, all right. A couple more logistics and then we'll get to some, 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 some more issues here. How many, roughly how many people does USA today, today have staffing uh, the Olympics? Uh, I think we have all total with editors, reporters, photographers, uh, video people, about 24. 20- Four twenty-five, which is a much smaller staff than normal. We have, I think, eight or nine reporters. Um, so people are doing double and triple duty, um, going back and forth. You know, riding buses for two and three hours, or or taking cars for two two hours. Um, but we're making it work, and our crew here is terrific. Um, you know, they're like the people that I work with are just fabulous. 
My sense is that, um, again, having covered games before, so I covered every Olympics from Salt Lake City to Sochi. And so it was a long run. And one of, um, one of the things that always sort of blew me away, Nancy, was just how many people Sports Illustrated sent, how many yeah. people USA Today sent, how many people the AP sent, how yep. many people the New York Times sent. Like these were like, I mean, mini cities. Um, when you covered the Olympics as you know, it wasn't NBC level staffing, but it was, it was a ton. And my sense is as at least in the six, I'm sorry, at least in the, in the eight years since I covered my last Olympics, these staffing numbers have gone down. Are you when in Beijing? And again, I I realize that, you know, you're not going to be at every media center, but sort of anecdotally from what you've seen are the levels of, uh, Western American journalists covering these games significantly down. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think it's a, there are a couple different factors this time around is a pandemic. Um, it costs a lot of money to send us over here because we couldn't take normal commercial flights. We had to do separate charter flight or specific charter flights to get in here. Um, and those were not cheap at all. Um, so I think if you were a paper and you were thinking about sending people, you either looked at, do we need to do it? Or do we need to send as many people? Um, so yeah, the the numbers are are definitely down. Um, you know, there's still a healthy media contingent, but it's not like as you said, it's it's not like the small cities that it used to be. In terms of the levels of of uh, journalists at individual events, uh, you know, we'll take the you know whatever event that you've you've whatever events that you've covered over the you know the first eight days or so. Uh, when you include the rest of the world, are the journalists are the are the reporter journalism journalism are the reporter journalist levels down as well meaning like less reporters covering these games from europe less reporters covering these games from other places from the past i think so and i just i say that or i judge that by the number of people who are in the different media centers um and also too you know how this is you you kind of get to know the international olympic press corps you you see the same people from games to games to games and there are definitely some people that i have not seen now granted i've been you know, only at Alpine and bobsled in terms of events. So that could be part of it. But, you know, Michaela Schifrin days, I'm not seeing necessarily some of the same people that I would would have seen probably five, 10 years ago. Um, and that's both American and internationally. All right. So let's get to some of the things that uh, you sort of you've covered and 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 how it works. Um, you're a columnist, so you probably have more latitude than other reporters there. How do you determine what stories you're going to cover on a daily basis? Well, because we have a smaller staff, we and because of the the you know venues being as spread out as they are, we kind of divvied it up by uh, by sports. Um, you know, we knew we needed uh, a columnist and a reporter on figure skating, and obviously Christine Brennan has covered figure skating for years, um, so she's going to do that. Um, we knew that Michaela Schifrin would be a big story. Um, and I covered skiing somewhat in 2018. So that, you know, I was kind of taking that and then <laughs> poor Dan Wilkin has kind of been bouncing back and forth. Um, you know, he was going to do some bobsled originally, but he's ended up doing a lot of, um, he's been doing big air a couple of days. He has gone to curling, you know, he's really been the one who's bounced back and forth. So, um, uh, it, it, it's, it's really kind of like looking at what the big events are, what we think the big events in the States will be, and then kind of planning accordingly from there. All right. I don't want to make any, uh, sort of, uh, 
you know, uh, guesses here, but I do remember in, in Olympics past, one of the things we were told, particularly at a foreign Olympics, was, you know, you'll always be in a better position if you have pre-existing relationships with the athletes that you're going to cover, so you can then set up times to talk them away from a mix zone, or if they're really, or security is really, really tight, you know, just sort of figuring out different ways to be able to talk to them that sort of don't work within the Olympic uh, structure. So for you, and let's sort of take uh, Alpine, because you mentioned that you were covering Schifrin, what has been your access to athletes, and have you had to do any kind of workaround because of whatever limited access you have to the American athletes? Yeah, the, the, those old ways of doing things are not, not possible um, here, you know, whether it's the COVID restrictions um, or just the security. I mean, <laughs> I got on the wrong bus last week at one point and ended up in the parking lot at the athletes village. It took me 40 minutes to get out of there. I had, I was at one point surrounded by, by surrounded meaning just like they were clustered around me, not surrounding me or anything like that, but, um, six soldiers. And then they eventually got a woman who was like a supervisor and she had to escort me. And, you know, I kept saying, or I said to one of the soldiers, I can just walk down the road because I could see the the parking lot I needed to get to from there. And they're like, oh, no, 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 no. So you don't have the latitude to, you know, meet somebody at, say, a, a, a hospitality event that a sponsor is putting on because they're not here. Um you, there's really little access to go into the athletes village. In fact, before the Alpine event started, there were a couple of press conferences that were at the athlete village, but we had to do them remotely because they weren't comfortable having us come in and, you know, be in, in a small enclosed room. Um, the, the one thing is though, is that, and maybe it's because we have smaller numbers here. Um, the athletes seem to be, they recognize us more. And so they seem to kind of, you know, be happy to stop because either they're, they're you know, looking for things to do too. They they don't have a whole lot of freedom. Um, but I think they know that we're, you know, we're covering them for the people back home. And I think that they, that they appreciate that. So, you know, like uh, today after the bobsled race, both uh, Kaylee Humphreys and Alana uh, Myers-Taylor stopped and it was, oh, hey, how are you guys doing? Like, you know, there was a recognition that I don't know if we would have had maybe at other games um, because we would have just been kind of a, a faceless dozens, whereas this time it's a handful of people and they have, you know, we did sit downs with them or, or Zoom or interviews before we came to the games. So, you know, you mentioned uh, there's no hospitality and things like that. You know, one of the um, one of the charms of covering the Olympics, at least in years past, was just the ability to sort of feel like you were part of a global village you know you can walk into like the canada yeah, house or the dutch house yeah like, the, the dutch house which always had free right. Heineken's basically for the press which was pretty awesome actually it, it strikes me that there's like none of this there like, like again one of my favorite moments of like uh of an olympics and i'll sort of just use like the athen games for example was i just remember being like in the middle of Sintagua square which is just look that up on a map and like, you know, there's literally people from all over the world, like outside dancing or, or just hanging out or, uh, you know, kicking a soccer ball. And like that, that's sort of the great, that was the great part of being at the Olympics. It's just, you're in this foreign place you might not normally be at. And you just feel like the whole world is with you and everybody's happy. It doesn't seem like any of this exists in Beijing. Is that correct? Yeah, no. Um, and it's, I actually thought about that, that kind of juxtaposition, um, when I was at Alpine the other day, there were, and I'm, I'm doing air quotes here, fans in the stands, 
Um, there are people who have been bussed in. They have been pre-screened. I'm assuming that they are party type people um, of the Communist Party here in China. But despite it being an outdoor venue, there were there was a barricade between them and the Olympic family type people. So, you know, the people from the different organizing committees, Olympic committees, other athletes, et cetera, et cetera. And there were guards standing at the the stairs up to the, you know, the fan seat so that you couldn't go up there, that you wouldn't mix. And that's just so opposite of what the Olympic vibe usually is. Like you said, it's the mixing of people and you're running into people from different countries and, oh, where are you from? And, you know, talking about athletes and things like that. You don't have any of that here. It's very, very sterile, I think is probably the best word that I can use to describe it. Right. The, the, I remember one of the, uh, one of my enduring memories of Beijing covering the games in 2008, um, was seeing just the military presence everywhere. I remember walking, you know, seeing th- dudes dressed up in there. Um, yeah, everybody was sort of uniform in terms of the, 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 the garb that they had. And there were people, I, I mean, again, I can't describe what the, the the guns were but they were meg i mean they were big like sort of like you know military style guns i remember there were tanks there uh at least a little bit in beijing for show um what's that been like for you in terms of the what kind of like police for lack of a better word police presence are you seeing as you're covering these events i think it's a little more hidden than than in 2008 um i have no doubt if i tried to get out somewhere that I would be, you know, chased down very quickly. Um, but because we're, we are so sealed in to begin with, um, I, I think that there's not as much of an obvious presence because there doesn't need me. I mean, you know, when we get on the bus in the morning, they unlock the gate to let the bus out. Um, you know, the, and then when we, when the bus pulls out, they lock the gate behind us. So, it's, you know, there's, there is not, a, there's no room for freelancing. So I, it, like I said, it feels like they don't need to have as much of an obvious presence. But again, I know that if one of us tried to go rogue, that would end very badly, very quickly. And so you can't, basically, there's a perimeter at a certain point, you cannot get past, correct. correct? Yeah. And that perimeter is very tight. I mean, you know, I usually will go out for runs when I'm on the road traveling at, at these events and you can't even do that. Um, there's, you can't walk on the sidewalk, you can't, there's no interaction with anything outside the quote unquote Olympic bubble. So when you're covering an event, let's just, let's, we'll take one of, uh, Schifrin's events, uh, just for an example, you know, one of the, um, one of the slaloms or the, the, that she did, where are you, where are you watching this event? Is there, are you at the bottom of the mountain watching monitors? Are you in some, is there some kind of press room how does that work in terms of where you physically are from from that perspective it's it's very similar to it's been any other games you know you go out and you watch in either the mix zone which is where the athletes come through when they're done and you're watching on the monitors or if you've got time you know you might watch in the press room and then run out to to grab an athlete afterward um so from that perspective that is very much similar to what we would do any games um and that that's pretty much the same operation you know bobsled you're watching it you can watch it at the start line, at the finish line, from the press room, in the mix zone. Um, so, you know, it, that part of doing your job is normal. You know, Schifrin was one of the biggest or has been one of the biggest stories in, at the Olympics for obvious reasons. Um, the greatest alpine skier ever. And then in her first two events, DNFs. Are you, um, 
you know, what we saw as American viewers, we obviously saw the run, um, and then she was on the course uh, for a long time, whatever it was, on the snow for 30, 35 minutes, just trying to compose herself, talking to her support staff, et cetera. Like, when that's going on, um, you know, if you're in the United States, Nancy, you're probably trying to make your way as close as you can to Michaela Schifrin. Um, but you're not in the United States. You're in Beijing at this controlled environment. So when all that's going on, like, what, what are you, you know, you don't have NBC's coverage, I imagine, at the mountain. So, like, what, what are you watching? What are you what are you doing? How was that sort of story for you? Um, well, I, I think all of us that were outside, you know, watching on the monitor, were frantically trying to craft a couple of paragraphs to send into our desks because, you know, those are two run races and nobody had pre-writes done because we just assumed she was making the second run. Um, so, yeah, you're 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 watching. You're trying to figure out, OK, she's up on the hill. Has she come down yet? Where is she coming? Is that her that kind of looks like it's her, who she talking to, you know, who she with, and you're, you're, you can't get close. So you're, you know, you're watching from, uh, you know, like basically a parking lot away. And then you're waiting to see, is she going to talk with media? Um, you know, at, at an event like the Olympics, athletes are required to go through what's called a mixed zone. It's basically just, you know, a gauntlet. They don't have to stop for, for the different outlets, broadcasters, radio, uh, print people. Um, but they do have to walk past us. And so that was a question is, well, is she going to stop and talk? And, you know, to her credit, uh, both days of those first two races, she stopped and did multiple broadcast stops, you know, obviously NBC, but then foreign, foreign broadcasters and then came. And I think the second day we got 20 minutes with her um, and she answered every single question. Um, and, you know, she didn't have answers necessarily. She was as, as shocked and surprised as everybody else was, but she spent the time and, and, you know, took it, took all of the questions and, and wasn't chippy or, or curt or anything like that. She's, I mean, as far as an athlete goes, she's a very much a pro to deal with. You know, one of the things that, uh, one of the things that's always interesting at the Olympics is that if you're covering it, you have to, and obviously you know this, I think you've covered more than me, but you you have to like be all in and all invested. Like this is the most important thing on the planet and you're covering it as such and you're working on the premise that everybody in the world cares about what you're writing. I think you just have to approach it like that's really the only way to sort of get it done given the environment. But the reality is, Nancy, like as you were covering these games, like most of the American sports public is focused on the Super Bowl, at least for this year. It's just, you know, it's just this weird confluence where, um, like literally on the same day of the Olympics, we have, uh, the Super Bowl in Los Angeles. And one of the things that was kind of always, and this sort of gets into very sort of inside baseball. One of the things that sort of was always crazy about the Olympics, a little depressing sometimes is you might work so hard on this really interesting story about a, uh, you know, cross country skier, or uh speed skater or biathlete and you know you look at the uh you know you find out the metrics of the day and the only thing people cared about was like the figure skating controversy scandal and everything else was like the nfl um so how do you i don't know you know you've again it's not like you haven't covered the super bowls and stuff like that but um do you are you aware of what is going on in the united states as you are covering the beijing olympics or do you almost want to sort of keep your mind so Beijing centered that you don't get caught up in, Hey, you know, I'm writing this story. I know it's a really interesting story, but 
no one back home is going to care about it. How do you, how do you sort of play with that? In your I, I think it's a little bit of both. Um, I, you know, on Saturday, yeah, Saturday, um, uh, Sophia Goggia, who's, she's an Italian downhill skier. She's the reigning Olympic champion in the downhill. She's been absolutely dominant in the downhill this season. She shredded her knee January 23rd, I think it was. Um, and so there were, you know, the assumption was she wasn't going to make it here. Well, she did. She, you know, worked her butt off to get here. And she said, I, you know, it's the Olympics. I want to be here. And she's really compelling. She's a great talker. She's very personable. She's very expressive. Um, and I, I said to one of my bosses, I said, you know, this is, to me, it's a great story. And especially given all of the other crap that there's been here with the, you know, the doping scandal, China, the IOC just being gross it, it kind of reminds you again why the Olympics are, are so special is because of people like her and because it means so much to the athletes. And I said to my bosses, I said, I'd like to write it. And, you know, my boss said, sure, go ahead. I don't know if it's going to, if it's going to be of interest to, to our audience. And I said, no, I agree with that. Um, but I went ahead and did it anyway. So it made me feel good. <laughs> um, did it get really any attention? Not at all. You know, it's the day before the Super Bowl. It's a name that people don't necessarily know in the States unless they're huge ski fans. So, you know, you do have to be conscious of that. But then there's sometimes there are these weird, quirky stories that you think are interesting and you do. And for some reason, it catches fire. Um, and I, I still, after however many of these I've done, I, I can't explain why those are or necessarily even pick out, you know, why something is is going to be of interest to people. But you know, I think you 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 be cognizant of that people only have so much bandwidth, and especially up against the Super Bowl, there's you know it shrinks even further. Um, but you also can't be so closed off that you don't take a chance every once in a while on those stories, or or think about what might resonate or what might be interesting to people back home. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, one of my uh, you know, and I'm really glad I did it. Obviously. Um, yeah, covering um, women's hockey in Sochi always drew a lot of uh, page views, and it was it was great to cover. Obviously, <clears throat> excuse me, the U.S. and Canada uh, playing. But my favorite stories, at least from Beijing, I covered the badminton <laughs> final and the table tennis final, which probably more than any other event gave me a real sense of China. Uh, that was a, that's the you know when I think about sort of China and particularly in 2008, all of those young people who were in the crowd, they were like 15 to 18 year olds. You really had a sense of just like how this country was going to be like a major, major, major player in, in the world, and um, if they weren't in 2008 already. And so I'm glad I covered that. But you're right. Yeah, I mean you have to. A lot of times you just have to sort of go with where um, you think are the most interesting stories, and and hope you can convince people to read. Um, this got a lot of attention, Nancy, obviously, before the game started, but um, how much do you worry about, not necessarily your personal safety, but intellectual safety, uh, your, you know, what you're emailing people, uh, what you're surfing on the web, um, you know, where you're going. Again, I, I'm not trying to get into anything conspiratorial, but the reality is, as an American reporter, um, I'm sure you're, you, a place like USA Today told you that... Like you have to work under the premise a lot of times that, um, you know, maybe things you're sending could possibly be hacked, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've written, 
even before we got here, I wrote a couple of columns that were very critical of China and the IOC, which I'm sure did not win me any friends in either place. Um, so yeah, I, you know, we all got warnings about um, don't bring, you know, bring one credit card, don't bring a whole wallet. Um, you know, make sure that you're locking your laptop every time you you walk away from it. Um, uh, we have burner phones. We didn't bring our our regular phones. Um, you know, the first thing I do every morning when I wake up is pick up my phone and immediately make sure that the VPN is on so that, you know, I'm, yeah. And it's, you know, it's something I'm conscious of. It's, and it's certainly not something I'm conscious of at home. Maybe I should be more careful, but um, we all are. And we assume that we're being watched and that we're being monitored and that anything that we say is probably being recorded. Um, like I said, the, the camera on my laptop has been turned off since I got here. Um, it's disconcerting, but you also, um, I don't want to say it's, it's, you know, it's to be expected, but unfortunately in a country like this, it is to be expected. Um, and at least we had precautions taken. Like I said, you know, we brought burner phones and burner laptops. So we kind of came into this prepared at least. Nancy, um, in terms of sort of seeing these games writ large, the, um, there's not, you know, <laughs> there's never the fa- this the fallacy that the Olympics aren't political have sort of always <laughs> existed. Like it's just it's a total. If you sort of believe that, you're just living in never never right. land. That said, these games really, in particular, um, have lacked. It might be the most unromantic Olympic games of all time. Like there's this is not Lillehammer at uh, Lillehammer. Sound like a New Yorker, Lillehammer. <laughs> uh, Albert. It is not Albertville. There's no charming sort of like scenes of like, you know, winter wonderland and, and, and some beautiful Swedish skier going to win the gold. Um, China has used these Olympics in many ways for pushing propaganda. We saw that on the on the opening ceremonies. Um, there's as I talk to you now, we're in the middle of yet another Russian, um, uh, you know, uh, controversy involving drugs, whether it it turns out to be performance enhancing or not, but we're in the middle of, of that. And that country obviously, um, you know, had state sponsored doping and we're given a slap on the wrist by the international bodies. Um, you mentioned sort of all the security aspect of this China's record on genocide, mm-hmm. uh, their horrible human rights. Yeah. They're sort of all out there and exist. And I sort of realize I'm asking a long question here, but, um, from from being inside of it, like I can sort of process all everything that you guys are writing from the outside, and 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 I see it sort of as an outsider looking in. But you're in the in the middle of this. How do, how have you viewed sort of these Olympics just as a as an event for the host country to push what they believe upon the West? And I just again wonder what it's like for you as a reporter being in the middle of that where they are doing the pushing from where you are literally to, you know, outside of their country. So like someone like me sort of sees what they're pushing. I I think it's, that is completely 100% their goal. And, and it is foremost in everything that's done. You know, you can start from the whole Peng Shui case and the fact that they have used the IOC and the IOC has gone along with it willingly um, to, reframe the narrative, you know, that she's this free woman and that she can do what she wants. You know, she was for several days, she was trotted around to to events like, like a show pony. And it was very disconcerting, very disturbing to watch it. And 
know that in some ways we're part of it um, because we're here and we're covering these things and and we're writing about it. Even if we're we're raising the question, we're still writing it. Correct. Yeah. Still taking part of it. Right? Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, the the cute panda mascot who I adore and, and just think is, a, you know, wonderfully cute. Are those plush dolls that are in demand? Are they being made by Uyghurs who are in slave labor camps? I mean, you know, all of it is there's a very ugly underbelly to all of this. And there is, you know, I love the Olympics. I love covering them, but there's, I've asked myself more than once, you know, should we be here? How much harm are we creating and causing by enabling this? Um, And not just on the part of China, but on the IOC, because they can do this as long as the money keeps flowing in. And again, we're all here. Yeah, I think about I, I like you. I always um, there's a part of me that in covering all the Olympics sort of felt like a hypocrite, even even covering one in the U.S. Um, because you really you are at the end of the day sort of enabling what the IOC does, and you know as I've said many times, like the IOC makes, uh, um, you know, the IOC is the rare uh, organization that like makes FIFA look good, which is almost yeah. impossible to do. <laughs> so like I I understand sort of the reconciling of that. Uh, let's finish up on this, you know. The the I don't know if you've seen this. I imagine you're sort of aware of this. The viewership numbers in the U.S. have been uh, terrible. Yeah, they'll be better. We're talking Nancy and I on Monday morning, my time. But um, they'll be much better on Sunday night just because you have the Super Bowl lead in. But this will be the least watched Olympics of all time. Um, NBC really has an impossible spin job on this. It just you, you can't sort of turn, you know, you can't turn bad ratings into good. But and this is where. I'm not one who thinks like the Olympic brand is is irrevocably broken or done because I look at what's coming next, Paris, um, Milan, and Los Angeles. And even if some of the the shine, not some, even if a lot of the shine off the Olympics is gone, which it is, I, I, I think that, you know, if we're in a post-pandemic world, I think Americans are going to jump back on board, particularly for those LA games in, in 2028. Again, as someone who covers this now and 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 will will likely be covering this olympic swing which gets away from totalitarian countries and and into the west what what you know what's your prognosis on the olympics sort of like a little short short long term and overall well i think i've got two of them um on the one hand i agree with you completely i mean it's it is a you know especially some of the ideas that we've seen from paris already they're going to do the opening ceremony on the river Seine. i mean it's it is visually it's just going to be spectacular um, you know, the, the games, this is the third consecutive one that's in a very unfriendly time zone to the U S audience. Whereas the, the next, you know, several will be, yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think from that perspective, it's, it's going to be much better, but I honestly, I also do worry if this is, you know, in 20 years, are we going to look back and say, these were the games that killed the Olympics? Um, because I, I think, there, because we have such access, ready access to news, people do know, even if they're not watching, they know what China has done. They know what the IOC has enabled. They know that there's a Russian doping scandal again. And is an entire generation or is a, you know, an entire group of people being turned off to these games permanently and just saying, you know what, this is just really gross or this is irredeemable. And I, I don't want to watch this. I don't want to be a part of this. Um, and I don't know. I, I hope not, because like I said, I love the Olympics. I love covering them. 
But I do think that there has been some real damage done and it is self-inflicted um, to the Olympic brand. And, you know, will these next couple of games be enough to, to reconcile that or, or rehabilitate that? I hope so, but I don't know. That sounds like a good column for you. <laughs> oh, honestly, not that I should be giving you advice, but I think that's interesting. I think actually that's, that examination is, uh, is pretty interesting. It's sort of what the Olympic brand will mean uh, post these Beijing games. But it's not even just these Beijing games. It's the last couple of uh, of uh, of games that we've seen in the Olympics, but particular in this one, obviously, just because the IOC is so complicit on um, on so many things. Will you uh, last one? Will you when you're when these are done? for you in whatever 10 days or so you can take a long break i hope yes. or, or you're moving on to you're not going you're not you're not immediately going to like uh i don't know marquette versus notre dame <laughs> college basketball or something like that. uh only if i would want to go for fun to root on my alma mater bring out a hoya um no i am t- i'm taking some time off i think pretty much all everybody who's doing this we've we've all talked about just how hard these games have been, um, you know, whether it's the the coverage itself or the lead up to or the combination, it, it's it's just been really exhausting. Um, and again, I I realize how awful that sounds. I'm in an Olympics, you know, boohoo, don't cry for me. Um, but I think everybody's going to need to to decompress for a little bit after these ones. Yeah, no, trust me, they're uh, it's hard to explain, but uh, you know, I remember after. I don't remember which Olympics it was, but like I, 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 I ended up uh, on Sports Illustrated's time. One of the great things about Sports Illustrated when they had, when they were flush with money back then, was you, they would pay for you to go anywhere if you traveled in the same direction heading back from wherever oh, you were. Oh wow! And so yeah, it was ridiculous. So I went to Amsterdam, Paris, uh, Madrid, and London on my way back from one of those European games, and I, uh, I just remember the day. Um, I remember a couple of days after whatever I was covering just ended. I just remember like breaking down in a cab. I think it was in Paris or something like that. At just a pure exhaust, you know, like the yeah. exhaustion. The twenty-hour days were finally over, and uh, again, you don't want to sort of tell people this because, like, oh my god, people would kill to cover the Olympics or be there. But it's just as you know, Nancy. It's just like long, endless days. Your brain never turns off, and then all of a sudden, like literally, like out of nowhere, it just yeah. stops. Like nothing ends yep, like an Olympics. Exactly. And so I'm glad you're going to take some time off because it's, uh, um, I think your, uh, your brain needs to recalibrate. All right. Nancy Armour is a USA Today sports columnist and is covering the Beijing games. Check out her work on that paper site. And you can certainly find her on Twitter as well. And, and once the Olympics are over, she'll be covering big events again, post, uh, post her vacation. Nancy, uh, Thanks so much for joining me today, and uh, I wish you nothing but uh, the best of health and safety as you uh, as you head to the second week and beyond of these games. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure talking with you. All right, back in the studio. My thanks to Michelle Tafoya and Nancy Armour for their times. I think Nancy Armour, as I said, I've never, uh, I don't think I've done a podcast with anybody who is literally further away from where I am taping than uh, than the one today with Nancy Armour. So thank you to her for uh, for popping on uh, across the globe previous podcast if you're interested in this stuff the challenges of covering a super bowl with jim trotter and uh, jane mcmanus uh chris herring the sports illustrated senior writer on his next book before that very very interesting conversation with espn president of programming and original content burke magnus who gave you his real sense of where espn is heading in terms of rights going forward before that troy aikman for that mike golick and jay glazer 
check out uh, the archives. There should be something there that you like if you are a fan of sports media. My thanks to Patrick Antonetti for his hard work getting up very, very early in the morning to do the Nancy Armour interview, so I appreciate him very much. Thanks to everybody at Cadence 13 for their support. And, uh, and thank you. Again, as I say every week, if you like this podcast, please leave us a five-star review and a nice note. Um, that's how the podcast continues. Again, thanks to everybody for listening. Thank you, Patrick, for your hard work this week. We'll see you soon on the Sports Media Podcast.